and you can communicate with David if there are any issues, all right? If there's any questions, I'm happy to try and address them. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me once again as we continue our journey through the seas of the Talmud. Tom's Talmudish Amesechet Megillah. Today's class is once again dedicated to the elevation of the Holy Neshama, the very, very special man, a Holocaust survivor, who went on to build a family and saw Nachas from his generations, Pinchas ben David HaKoyen, as he approaches his Shleshim, may his Neshama have an Aliyah. Today we're going to be concluding this notion of feminine prophecy. It's a, it's a series that we've, we've gone through. All seven of the individuals mentioned as being prophetically inclined. The last of which, which was just a, a mention, was Esther, Esther Hamalka. <laughs> but then again, Esther looms very, very large in this tractate. And of course, the book of Purim is called Megillat Esther. So the focus is not quite back on Esther yet. But just before Esther, we spoke about a great biblical prophetess. Her name was Chulda. She lived in Jerusalem during the waning years of the First Temple era. And we learned about Chulda. She was a contemporary of Yirmiyahu, coming from the same family, a cousin of his. And yet, when King Yeshiyahu receives a very, very frightful message, because the Torah is miraculously rolled to a certain portion, she doesn't send for Jeremiah. She seeks the counsel and the prophetic intuition and advice of Chulda. And in our previous episode, we talked about this in great detail. Significant emphasis placed on the notion of the virtues of feminine prophecy, framed with compassion and a sense of Rachmanus, of mercy. It's interesting that on the verses in the actual Tanakh, all of the Mepharshim, Rashi, Radak, Mitsudas, they all talk about this Gemara and they all mention in different syntax the superiority of Rocha, of, of her prophecy, of Huldah's prophecy, that it's in a sense framed, as we mentioned, with the notion of compassion. Now, since the Gemara has talked in detail about Huldah, our Gemara becomes now the natural space to include the lineage of Huldah. And today, we'll be tracing prophecy. We're going to talk a lot about generations, ancestry, and how the notion of one's ancestors necessarily contributes to the spiritual welfare, accomplishment, and achievement of great individuals. This could be in a very positive way. Unfortunately, sometimes it could also be in a negative way. When you have somebody extraordinarily righteous who births and raises extraordinarily righteous children, they have the added emphasis of that background. When you have a wicked person who raises children in a wicked, selfish, and evil way, well, you can only imagine that the impact is multiplied as well. This and much, much more awaits you in this very exciting episode. I'm so pleased that you've joined me today. If you aren't yet subscribed, please take a moment to subscribe and do me a favor 
enable notifications. So whenever I go live, in case you're watching, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan, you can study some Torah and thereby elevate yourself and your environment. With no further ado, we are now going to focus on the notion of Hulda's ancestry as we trace her gift of prophecy. Om Arav Nachman, the Gemara says on Mesechet Megillah Daf Yudalit, page 14b, Om Arav Nachman, Arav Nachman taught Chulda mi bnei bonov shel Yehoshua. Chulda was a descendant of the great prophet and leader of the Jewish people, successor to none other than Moshe Rabbeinu himself, Yehoshua, Joshua, our second great national leader who led us into the land of Israel, directed its conquest and its settlement. So Chulda has the lineage or ancestry of Yehoshua. How do we know this? Where in the scripture is there indication of Chulda's ancestry? So the Gemara says, Ksiv, it is written, Hacha here, and we are refer, of course, to the verses that we've talked about in the previous episode, Ben, the son of Hacheres. All right, let's take a moment to look outside the page of Talmud. Let's look back at the actual Pasuk in the Tanakh. The Book of Kings, Malachim Beis, chapter 22, verse 14. By command of the king, Va'achbar, Va'shofan, Va'asoya, all of these individuals went El Chulda Hanavia. And now, since Chulda Hanavia is being mentioned for the first time here in the scripture, the Torah gives her a little bit of a station identification. Who was Chulda Hanavia? The scripture says, She was Eishes Shalom, Ben Tikva, Ben. Charchas. She was the wife of Shulam, the son of Tikva, the son of Charchas. Now, it says that this fellow, Shulam ben Tikva ben Charchas, was Shemer Habigodim. He was the individual who is responsible for the royal wardrobes. Shemer Habigodim was a position of prominence, and because it was a position of prominence, so therefore, the Torah identifies Chulda by telling us that her husband was well-known. That's how the Marshal explains it. So the question now becomes, why is it necessary to say that she is the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Charchas, if he's already known? He's known to be Shemir HaBagadim, who needs the lineage. Back to the Gemara. So the Gemara says that here in the Pasuk, when it speaks about Chulda, it says, Ben, the son of Charchas, Viksiv Hasam, and it is written there, there refers to the book of Judges, the second book of Judges, Shoiftim Beis, in the ninth chapter, where there it speaks about the burial of Yehoshua, and over there it's written that Yehoshua was buried, Betimnas Cheres. So here we have this notion of Charchas. She's identified with Charchas, son of Charchas. 
And when it comes to the burial place of Yoshua, we mention Timnas Cheres. Now, this is not something which is apparent. It's not obvious to the casual observer. You have to be extremely scholarly and clued in to the nuances of biblical exegesis to be able to read between the lines. This requires tremendous skill, biblical acumen, if you will, and also, of course, a sense of Ruach HaKadosh, because you can't simply read into the scriptures at will. So Rav Nachman said that by analyzing the scripture carefully and by doing a study by comparison between the verse that introduces us to Chulda and between the verse that describes the last journey or resting place of Yehoshua, and since here it says Charchas, we don't know of a Charchas, but we do know that Yehoshua is buried in a place they call Timnas Cheres. Timnas is a place, the place of Cheres. So there's a relation between Charchas and Cheres. And why would the Torah give us a name if it's a name that has no, if you will, value? It doesn't tell us anything. Now, of course, I know what you're thinking. It doesn't say that Chulda is the son of Charchas. It says her husband, Shalom, Ben Tikva is Ben Charchas. This is a very good question. It's so good that Rashi himself deals with it. Rashi says, Ben Charchas, the Af al Gaf, the Crow al Bailo, Komasid, even though, says Rashi, the verse here is giving testimony, if you will, or speaking of her husband. This is a verse that's about Chulda. It's not about Shalom. That is to say, every single word in the scripture is measured. If, for whatever reason, the Navi was told to include an appellation, a description, as we learn later, even a place or ancestry, there has to be a good reason for it. Rav Nachman was taught this. He knew this. Now, it's not about Shalom. And Shalom happened to have been known. So if the scripture is identifying Chulda, Chulda who? <laughs> you know, there's a video of a fellow coming to the Rebbe. And he says to the Rebbe, dollars. The Rebbe's, you know, people passing by. He says, Ich bin Akara from Binyamin's. I'm Binyamin's relative. So the Rebbe says, Binyamin who? <laughs> Like, I'm Binyamin's relative. This, in this man's mind, the fact that his cousin was Rabbi Binyamin Klein, who was one of the Rebbe's aides, a person who was oftentimes standing at the side of the Rebbe, and when the Rebbe was giving dollars, Rabbi Klein was right there. So to him, that was his ticket. I'm Binyamin's cousin. So the Rebbe says, Binyamin who? Like, I'm Binyamin. There isn't one Binyamin in the world. So if we say, they went to Chulda Hanavia, as if she's a known commodity. Nobody has ever heard the name Chulda mentioned before. Now, the Gemara does tell us that Chulda was not only a prophetess, but a great teacher of Torah. And many, many students would gather around to listen to her expound and teach the Torah. In fact, according to one opinion, the southern entrance or approach to the Har Habayat, the vastly expounded compound called the Temple Mount, those gates were called Share Chulda. And there, the Gemara lists two reasons for that. One is that they would snake through the mountain 
not really the mountain, but the landfill, the built up, vastly expanded tabletop area that was called the Temple Mount. And incidentally, those entrances still exist. Tragically, they've been huh, adopted, that's a nice word to use, kind of stolen by another faith system and even enlarged and turned into a house of worship for somebody else. Totally inappropriate. A brazen act of theft under the nose of the Israeli authorities. If you want to know, we're still in Golis. To see the Temple Mount being ravished on a regular basis is perhaps the most telltale sign of this. But I digress. Those entrances, steps exactly as they're described in the Gemara, enter on the southern elevation, but really, really lower, lower down on the southern elevation, and they make their way through a tunnel like a weasel. As we learned yesterday, the chulda is the name of a weasel. So they're called Sharei Chulda. But the Gemara lists another reason. The Gemara tells us that Chulda, the great prophetess of Yerushalayim, would hold court or lead Torah teaching at the base of the southern elevation of the Temple Mount. And because so many students would flock to hear her words, the gates behind her, which allowed entrance into the Temple Mount, became known as Sharei Chulda. And that was already in the time of the first Beis HaMikdash. And so when they rebuilt the Beis HaMikdash, the second time around, those gates had still existed. And it was maybe a nostalgic way to refer to the past history of the first Beis HaMikdash by continuing to refer to those gates as Shari Chulda. Very interestingly, the other gates, to the best of my recollection, had names, nicknames as well, like Shar Tedi, like Shar Nikanor, but these were all people who lived in the Second Temple era, if I make no mistake. However, here, Shari Chulda, there was a remnant of a First Temple kind of memory of Chulda teaching Torah at that spot. And the point I'm trying to make is this. Chulda is known to Torah scholars. She's known to those who are familiar with Jewish history and Torah literature. But here, in the Book of Kings, we are getting introduced to Chulda for the first time. So he sent her to Chulda. Who? Chulda Hanavia. She doesn't seem to have been a known commodity at the time. Well, she had a husband who was known in a prominent way. He was, as we said, he had a position. He was the Shomer Habgadim. So as such, purveyor, clothier, or purveyor of wardrobe. So because he was known in that sense, for this reason, we have this idea of Chulda being identified with her husband. All right, so why are we talking about lineage? The only reason the Torah lists lineage is if it's talking about this individual, because it wants to tell you something about this person. But this person is only playing a supporting role to begin with. He is not a primary actor. Shalom is not the primary actor in verse 14. He plays a secondary role. He is merely a supporting actor. The primary actor here is Hulda. She is the center of attention. She's on the stage. She's being approached by these very prominent individuals on a special mission from none other than the king himself. So why would the Torah have to give us the lineage of Hulda's husband? 
The only reason he was mentioned to begin with is merely in a supporting role because he was already a known commodity. So if you want to introduce somebody new to the scene, you would say they are the friend of, the associate of, the spouse of, and so on and so forth. And that's how Rashi explains to us that the notion of Ben Charchas sounds like it's referring to Shalom, and maybe Shalom was also a relative. Maybe they were cousins. It's possible there were many cousins who married. And maybe Shalom was also from the lineage of Tikva and Charchas. It's quite possible. But the reason that the lineage of Shalom is being mentioned as Ben Charchas is because there's a specific message the Torah wants, or the scripture, the Tanakh, the Novi wants to give us with regard to Chulda. Anyway, that's of Nachman's sleuthing work, and that's what he comes up with in order for us to appreciate and understand the notion of Chulda's lineage, her prophetic ability being traced to her lineage, and the prophecy is traced back to Yehoshua. The Marsha tells us that we find something similar, where there is a woman named Yaal, a very famous figure in Jewish history. When Caesar or Sisra attacks the Jewish people in the time of Devorah and Barak ben Avinoam, so at that time we have a situation where Yaal purports to seduce the general Sisra, but in fact leads him on to lower his guard and drives a, t- a tent peg through his temple. So over there it says, Yal Eishes Chever Hakeni. Now Chever Hakeni is a descendant of Jethro's. It was known as the Canite. And that's why Chever was called Chever Hakeni. But the point is, Yal has never been heard of before. Chever Hakeni is mentioned. In that verse, in the book of Kings, Yal is the primary actor. Chever Hakeni only plays a supporting role. So Marsha says, you see, there are times when we get introduced to somebody only because they are being used as what you would call station identification. They're merely used to frame the subject. Another example would be a pasuk, a verse, the Chever HaKeni is in the book of Judges, as we said. And another example would be the story of Avigail, who we mentioned in a previous episode, that she was Eshet Navel or Novel. And Novel is a known commodity. Now, you'll look in both of those incidents. It doesn't say Hever ben whoever. It doesn't list the lineage of Hever. Why? Naturally, says Masha, because he's only playing a supporting role. It's not about him. Why list his lineage? It's not about Nevel or Novel. He was a degenerate, a miserable guy. We don't care about hearing if he was miserable, or as we'll learn later on today in the Gemara, sometimes when there's a Russia, a wicked, selfish person, who is the son of a sadistic, cruel, or wicked person, will list the name to say, this person didn't come to it on his own. It's a continuation of a sordid, rotten legacy. But there, the Torah, we know that, that the novel is not a nice fellow, but he was a known fellow. A huge billionaire, a magnet, a magnate of... Of, of goats and sheep, but a person who was rebellious, as we learned in a previous episode. So over there, it says, Avigail Eishes Novel, but it doesn't say Novel Ben Who, because once again, Novel there is known, not for anything good, but he's a known commodity of the time, and he merely plays a supporting role to frame 
or identify his illustrious wife who is being introduced for the first time, Avigail. So that's the drasha. That's the teaching of Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman is happy to share with us the fruits of his sleuthing. And he tells us you must know that in fact, this is who Rachav comes from. The Gemara comes along and says, this teaching was not necessarily accepted at the very time where Rav Nachman was teaching Torah to the Jewish people in Pompadisa, there were two elders. There were two elders, Rav Enom and Rav Yehuda Saba, who were, it seems, much older than Rav Nachman, although they were subservient insofar as scholarship was concerned, that Rav Nachman was considered the great Rebbe. He was also, by the way, a, a Sion, a descendant of Dovin Melech, and that also helped. So anyway, Rav Nachman has the big position, but uh, Rav Enom Saba was a big man. Rav Enom and Rav Yehuda were two very important people. They were called Sabei de Pumpedisa. As the Gemara says in Masechet Sanhedrin on page 17, they were the elder, sagacious individuals of Pumpedisa, which was the center of the Torah world at the time. The Gemara says, Eis ve'reveina saba le'rav nachman. Reveina saba asked the question of Rav Nachman. You maintain that Rachov, as a descendant, that we trace her prophecy through her lineage to Yehoshua. However, there is a, a b'raisem, there is a teaching which is of Mishnah genre and cannot be contradicted by a rabbi of a later time like Rav Nachman. And there it is stated, Shemoyne Nevi'im, eight prophets, Veheim Kohanim, and they were all Kohanim. Here's a little incidental. It is telling and compelling to note that after the Torah talks to us about the special mitzvahs that Kohanim have to adhere to, the Torah goes on then to speak about divination and the forms of alien spirituality, which leads the question, why is it that the Torah juxtaposed these two to one another? Reb Chaim Paltiel was one of the great Rishonim who wrote commentary. I would say he's not in the A-League, not like Ramban, Rashbam, Rashi, Ibn Ezra, but the B-League, very important Rishon, and his commentary is known to scholars. And he explains that this is because there were many Kohanim who were Nevi'im. And then there were many Kohanim who weren't. So the Kohanim who weren't, you know, they felt a little bit, eh, as if they were second rate. And they also wanted uh, clairvoyance. And for whatever reason, they weren't deserving of that clairvoyance or prophetic intuition. And they might be tempted to seek alien forms of spirituality to be able to develop that clairvoyance. This is, unfortunately, the nature of human beings. And therefore, Abraham Paltiel says, that's why the prophets who were Kohanim could inspire a certain, maybe, jealousy for the prophets, for the Kohanim who are not prophets, and that might cause them to consider inappropriateness so the Torah comes along and says, Kohanim have their mitzvahs. Oh, by the way, guys, none of that funny stuff. There is one form of spirituality, one form of higher consciousness for us. It's Nevuah and Ruach HaKedosh and Chas V'Shalom for us to look in foreign fields or to pasture in somebody else's mountaintop. Anyway, uh, so it's interesting to note that the Torah he does over here emphasize the concept of Shemayin Nevi'im, 
And the Gemara emphasizes Vehem Kohanim, which are two virtues, the virtues of prophecy, which is their own special virtue, virtue of Kohanim. In antiquity, the spiritual leadership of the Jewish people was vested, certainly during the time of the first base of Migdash, very much in the hands of the Kohanim. Everybody else was busy with their vineyards and with their olive groves and other, other uh, things that they were doing. The tribe of Yisachar did devote itself to Torah study, specific, specifically the notion of keeping time and our calendar. But as a rule, the Kohanim would work at the Beis HaMikdash twice, maybe three times a year. And during the rest of the time, they lived in cities, 48 cities, Kohanim and Levim, across, strategically placed across the land of Israel, and they served as the clerisy, the clergy, the rabbis, the shochtim, the, the mashpim, the mentors, and many were Kohanim too. So here we have, we have eight Nevi'im, who are prophets, famous spiritual leaders, guides, mentors in their time, and they all the Brisa says, Yatsu, fasten your seatbelt. Their prophecy and their prominence as priests can be traced back to Rochov Hazoina, the prostitute, the harlot named Rochov. Your mouth must be open now. Really? Kohanim? Nevi'im? That's where their lineage is traced back to? And if that's not good enough, the Brisa goes on to list them. V'yeluheim, these are they. Nerya, Baruch, Sharia, Machsia, Yermio, Chilkia, Hanamel, and Shalom. Now we'll talk about these Kohanim a little bit later on in the next episode, so to speak. Not known this episode of Gemara, but a little bit further in the Gemara. But the Gemara goes on, on to talk about the notion of these individuals as having traced their lineage back to, let's just say, a dubious individual. Rav Yehuda Eimer, so, so far we don't have a challenge to Rav Nachman. Okay, the only challenge you could say to Rav Nachman is, he seems to trace prophecy back to righteousness. And this Brisa says, not necessarily. Righteousness is not a foregone conclusion in begetting prophecy. In fact, prophecy was begotten by a harlot. But here comes the real question. Rav Yehuda, Rav Yehuda says, Not only these male prophets who were Kornim, but also Chulda, who was a female prophet, is directly descended from the generations of the genealogy of Rachav. Hazayinu. So where does the Brisa get that from? Ah, the Brisa did its own sleuthing. The Brisa sees it in the very same Pasuk. But if Nachman maintains that he is actually learning this from the Pasuk in Melachim, Beis, the second book of Kings in the 22nd chapter, the 14th verse, where it says, Ben Charchas, the Brisa analyzes the very same verse. Only the Brisa looks at the words before Ben Charchas, and they are Ben Tikva. So it's the same methodology. It's the same notion of, you know, uh, seeing the enumeration of genealogy as illuminative, not for shal uh, shalom, but rather for chulda.
Rabbeinu says, Shalom was Ben Tikva. And the Brisa says, why are we hearing about Ben Tikva? As Mashal explained, Ben Shalom, I mean, Eishe Shalom only needed to have the notion of Shemir Habagadim. He's a supporting role. We don't need his genealogy. So the Yehuda says, sorry, the Brisa says, Ksiv Hacha Ben Tikva. Here it says Ben Tikva. Ksiv Hasam. And it says there, Eit Tikvat Chut Hashoni. The cord, the rope of scarlet, the scarlet rope. So the background is that the Meraglim, the spies that Joshua sent after the passing of Moshe Rabbeinu to go into the city which stood at the entrance to the land of Canaan, Jericho, Yericho. And these two spies go there and Rochav, the harlot, the Zona, and I will explain this in a moment, talk about that, takes them in and she says, they're terrified of you. Everybody's terrified of the Israelites. Yabba knows that he's a cooked goose. I will provide you shelter. But promise me that I and my family will be spared. And so as the Mepharshim say with divine intuition flickering, they agree and they say you will hang a scarlet thread down the window of your home and that home, that will be the sign. No one in that home will be touched. But everybody else in the city was fair game, so to speak. When we went to war, the Jewish people would lay siege on three sides. Anybody who wanted to flee the war theater was welcome to do so. Anybody who remains in the war theater is a combatant. You don't get off on being a different gender or a different age. You need to leave. You need to vacate. You need to move on. If you stay, then that's a combatant. It may not be the Geneva Conventions, but that's the Torah Conventions of War. So Rochav and her family were the only ones spared in the entire city of Yericho. And it came from what was called Tikvat Chut Hashoni. That was the sign. And so, here we have the uh, scripture using the word Tikvat. And here it says, Ben Tikva. So the Brisa says, draws an allusion or a juxtaposition between Ben Tikva, which is not to be taken literally, but rather euphemistically, and Tikvat Chut Hashani, what Rachel was famous for, and therefore the Brisa comes to the conclusion that Rachel was the mother of many prophets, the matriarch of prophets of Kohanim, and her progeny included Chulda. Now let's go back and talk about Rachel. So we have a problem here, we have a contradiction between the sleuthing performed by Rav Nachman, his analysis of the verse, and him looking at the word Ben Charchas, and the Braisa, who looks at the words Ben Tikva. And Rav Nachman cannot argue with the Braisa. Rav Nachman is an Amora, a rabbi from the era of the Gemara, whereas the rabbi of the Talmud, of the Mishnah, the Braisa, tells us we learn not from the word Ben Charchas, but rather from the word Ben Tikva. Excuse me. Let's talk about um, let's talk about Rochav a little. Was she actually a prostitute? I mean, it doesn't say she's a big rebbitzin, but uh, what a funny way to call the person who's seen as the mother of prophecy. Excuse me.
So what's the story? I'm glad you're interested. Let me give you some background. Rashi, in the book of Yoshua, in the beginning of the second chapter, bases his commentary on the words Rochav Hazona, on the Targum of Yonatan ben Uziel, the elder disciple of Hillel, who renders the scripture into Aramaic, the spoken language of the time. But it isn't really just a translation. In fact, it is oftentimes very much a commentary. And Rashi looks towards the Targum of Unculus, the Roman Achilles, not to be confused with the famous one in Greek literature, who was a convert. And he is the number one source for Rashi's either interpretation or comparative interpretations. But oftentimes, Rashi will look towards the Targum of Yonatan ben Uziel as well. Yonatan ben Uziel says that the word Zona means an innkeeper. But in this inn, it wasn't just Motel 6 where you got yourself a bed and a shower. It was also a place that had a, a, a restaurant or a tavern. You could actually purchase food. So you paid for your room and you also could purchase a meal. Maybe like a bed and breakfast place, if you will. That's before the days of, what do they call that, uh, Airbnb? <laughs> this is before the Airbnb, because the bread and breakfast, the person who owns the home is there to serve you. So that's what Rashi says. Sezona is a, is a euphemism, not a harlot not a prostitute, and it comes from the word mizonot, which means sustenance, or food. A place to sleep and food to eat. Rabbeinu David Kimchi, a very, very important major commentator on the Tanakh as well, especially on Tanakh itself, is considered to be extremely prominent and important, perhaps almost on par with Rashi in the Nevi'im. Radak says, oh no, it says Zona, it says prostitute or harlot, and that's what it means. Now, Radak, of course, cannot contradict the Targum Yonot of Ben Uziel. He doesn't. He says that it, Yonot of Ben Uziel, using the word Pundekoit, which means innkeeperess, is a kind of euphemistic. And he says it's because a pundikois gives you a bed to sleep in and uh, many innkeepers provided not only the bed but also a companion to sleep with. She gave you all your needs. It was a one-stop service. You got a bed, you got a woman, you got lunch. All for one low price. All one high price. I don't know what she charged. <laughs> but that's the way that Adak essentially uh, explains how he's not contradicting Yonatan ben Uziel, and he says Yonatan ben Uziel isn't leaving the literal meaning of the scripture. It says zona and zona, it means a zona. Now, of course, that's not what the Targum says, at least not overtly. It is what the scripture seems to say, but Yonatan ben Uziel elects to interpret or explain it differently. So Radak bases his words 
on the Gemara in Masechet Zvachim, on page 116, and over there the Gemara states emphatically, Rachav Haisa Zaina. Rachav was a Zona. Now, the Abarbanel goes on to suggest that there is, in fact, no contradiction between the two views. Both are true. She was an innkeeper. And he says female innkeepers at that time were typically harlots. You'll forgive me. I don't know this directly, but as I've heard, um, massage parlors oftentimes double as more than a massage. It's that kind of thing. If I'm wrong about this, you'll forgive me, but that's what I've heard. And essentially, the notion of innkeeper <laughs> in that time, in that milieu, meant yes, a bed to sleep in and companionship to sleep with. The Ben Nun, or the Bin Nun, he has a very difficult time with uh, Radak's interpretation, and even with what the Gemara says. He says, it's a Dover Megunali Yisrael. Come, come on, he says. We're tracing prophecy to harlotry? Prophecy and prostitution are not exactly French fries and ketchup. He says, this, this doesn't jibe. It doesn't seem, it doesn't seem to lend itself to the message that the Gemara is giving us here. And so the Bin Nun goes on to say that he believes that they're what called Midrashes Chalukos. And we have sometimes different views or different schools of thought. He says one school of thought is that Rachav is a Zayna. That's one school of thought. That's the school of thought that's spoken of in the Gemara in Masechet Zvachim. And that's the school of thought that Rabbeinu David Kimchi, for whatever reason, elects to follow. He's a stickler to the literal words used in the scripture. And so he sticks to the meaning zona. Rashi who we know has this methodology called Pshuta Shomikra, which is not necessarily always focused only on faithfulness to the etymology or the verbiage, but Rashi often includes, in fact, always includes syntax, the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is that this woman is a famous and great biblical heroine. Zona? It doesn't match. So Rashi follows the other school of thought, that Rachav was an innkeeperess. She ran an inn, a bed and breakfast place, and she was a righteous woman. And she didn't engage in prostitution, because you'll forgive me, prostitution and righteousness have nothing in common. It's a profoundest act of depravity. It's profoundly immoral. There's no way to reconcile that. It's not okay. The Benun says further, that the school of thought, the view that Rachel was not a harlot or a prostitute, but rather a woman who ran an inn, is the same school of thought that our Gemara here follows. The Gemara that says that Rachel was the ancestress of prophets, of priests, and of Chulda. And that is the approach of Rashi, and that was the opinion of Rav Nachman, who also, incidentally, taught that Yehoshua married Rachav. And he was the one who fathered those children, as we'll soon learn, daughters, who eventually become the ancestresses of this very illustrious bloodline. As we will see. 
And so, according to the Binun, the Gemara in Meseches Megillah is at, at odds with the Gemara in Meseches Zvachim, and there are two different divergent paths, unlike the Abarbanel's approach, that they really don't have to be different and could be differing views of the same situation. She was an innkeeper, and she was a harlot, according to Abarbanel. I'm going to go with the Binun, if you, if you permit me. And so we're going to trace prophecy back to an innkeeper who doesn't stick with the locals, but sympathizes with the cause of Israel, and eventually, as we'll see, converts, ends up marrying the great Rebbe of the time, Yehoshua, and bears his children, initiating a very illustrious bloodline from which we trace prophecy. Let's go further in the Gemara now. So we have, back to the Gemara, we have this contradiction. Rav Nachman viewing the verse in one way, the Brisa seeming to view the verse another way, one tracing prophecy to Rochav, the famed biblical Canaanite woman, or convert, convert to the Jewish people, and the other tracing prophecy to Joshua, to Yoshua. And the first is only an Amora, the second is a Brisa from the genre of the Mishnah itself. And sort of Eina Sabi, that Eina the elder, does not accept the teaching of Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman turns to Rav Eina and he says the following, Omar lo Eina Saba, Eina the elder, Va'amrila, and others maintained, that's not what he called them on that day. He said, instead of Aina the Elder, he said, Pasya Ukoma, blackened vessel. You know, like a pottery vessel that's been blackened from soot and has seen much use. Minei Uminoch, Mini Uminoch, between me and you, he says, Tistayim Schmeitzer. We will figure this out. The teaching will be clarified, crystallized, and completed. And namely, that is, these famous prophets and priests, that this great prophetess, the source of female prophecy, so virtuous as we've learned, hails from the progeny from the ancestry of Rochov and Yehoshua. The Igairo, because Rochov converted to Judaism, the Nazbe Yehoshua, and she ended up marrying Yehoshua Benun. How do you like that? So not only was she instrumental in enabling the Jewish people to get a proverbial finger in the door, not only does she save the lives of these two righteous Meraglim, Kolev ben Yefuna and Pinchas ben Elazar, not only does she save their lives and dispatch them home to Yehoshua, she in fact is the one who provides the critical information that Yehoshua needs to begin his campaign of conquest. She converts and becomes the Rebetzin of the Jewish people. Now we'll hear later about Rachov. We'll hear some more about her. We'll hear about the, she was extraordinarily beauty, which perhaps beautiful, and perhaps that led people to think in the terms 
of Rachel Vazayna in a harlotrous way in her youth when, uh, when she's living amongst the Canaanites. But at any rate, let's talk about this blackened vessel. Sounds like Rab Nachman is offended by Rav Eina's challenge. He's calling him like, a, like an old thing. You, you old, you blackened old thing. You've, you know, you're old and soot-filled, old, worn. <laughs> you know, forgive me. In English, it's like saying, hey, you AK. That's not respectful. Well, Marsha comments on this. And he says, truth be told, this is not to be seen as disparaging. But rather, we should see this as what you would call a compliment. Rav Nachman was acknowledging not only the years, the seniority on the passport, so to speak, that Ravena had, but he was acknowledging the years as being filled with toil of Torah. When he called him a blackened vessel, he meant a worn vessel. He meant worn, worn with the toil of Torah, refined, transformed, sublimated because of his efforts. Marsha says that the way of Talmud Chachamim is that they toil over Torah. Success in Torah study does not come without toil, ever. In fact, if anybody tells you that they were successful in Torah study and they didn't work hard, oh, there's a Gemara in Masechet Psachim that says, Al Tanin, don't believe him. But if you toil, you will succeed. And success may not be in comparison with your companion, but in accordance with who you could be. Your gaita, v'lei matzasa, I toiled and I didn't succeed. Altaman says the Gemara, don't believe that. Le'yogaiti, I didn't toil, umatsasi, and I found tremendous success. Altaman, don't believe that. What do you mean? This person says, I have success. That's not success. If you could have achieved a thousand and you achieved 500, you're a failure. You only exhausted half of your potential. In order to succeed at utilizing and developing and unfurling the full power and potential and wherewithal that Hashem gave one for success in Torah study, toil is necessary. It is an absolute requisite. Now, based on a comment of the Rebbe Rashab, our Rebbe develops this into a thesis, not only for Torah study, but in fact, a commentary on Yiddishkeit, meaning the purpose of life itself. And that's a subject for another day. I have a series which is available on Chabad.org on the 12 psukim, on the 12 passages. This passage was selected by the Rebbe as being the 12, one of the 12 foundational steps towards self-actualization. And I encourage you to go and watch all 12. And if you're curious about your gaiti, at least to watch the ninth of, the, of, the, uh, of those lectures, which is about your gaiti. But at any rate, the point, Marsha says, is that Torah scholars toil in Torah. They toil in Torah. And because they toil in Torah, they, becomed, they become what you would call wizened or worn. He says sometimes you could even see this physically. Sometimes the clothing of a Torah scholar seems threadbare, worn, or proverbially speaking, blackened from use. 
like pottery. The pottery isn't beautiful. It's not China. It's not Memphis service at the table. It's your good old pot. It's the thing you use in the kitchen. It's where you cook the food, not the way you present it. And in fact, that's really what Torah is about. It's not about presentation, my friends. It's not about bells and whistles. This is not about saying things that are politically correct or sound eloquent. If you came for entertainment, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I've said this before. If you're going to come and join me in this journey, don't expect quick fixes. Please don't get frustrated if I'm not funny or entertaining. This is about toil and Torah. I toil to prepare the class. I toil to teach the class. And I pray that you're toiling to understand the words that I'm sharing with you. Because Torah comes with toil. Like a blackened pot in the kitchen. Worn. Developed. Used. Not beautiful. That's not what it's about. Effective is the word we should use. And the Marsha says clearly, Niskavin Lishavchai. Here, Rav Nachman did not mean to disparage Rav Eino. On the contrary, he praised him publicly, saying that Rav Eino's brilliance was not only due to his years, not only due to his actual technical seniority, but the toil in Torah and the way he utilized the time that Hashem had given him. There's an interesting Gemara in Meseches Tainus that says, the Torah lasts better in a vessel which is vulgar or unattractive. The wine isn't stored in gold vessels. The wine is stored in common barrels. That's how you preserve wine. If you put it into gold jugs, it'll simply turn into vinegar. Oh, by the way, this doesn't mean you have to be physically ugly. That's not the point. The point is that there isn't an emphasis on physical beauty or physique or prowess or wealth or popularity, but rather that the Torah will reside within a person who is humble. Humility, seen in metaphoric terms as a blackened or very plain pot or plain container, is the metaphor that Anachman here is alluding to. The Gemara in Meseches Tainus that we allude to here in the Marsha relates that a princess, a Roman princess, a daughter of the Caesar, once referred to Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania as, quote, glorious wisdom in an ugly vessel. In other words, as the Gemara there explains, one who is physically unattractive is more prone to humility and as such more naturally predisposed to attaining what we would call glorious wisdom. It doesn't mean you have to labor to be ugly. It just means that a predisposition to humility is also a predisposition to attaining greatness in Torah knowledge and understanding. So this should help you appreciate Rav Nachman's expression, oh, and by the way, 
You know, I mentioned so many times the notion of Sichas Chulin Shiltzal Limud, that even casual speak of great sages is worthy of analysis and can teach us so much. Well, this is a beautiful, perfect case in point. Here, the Gemara chooses to record the two versions of how Rav Nachman responded, whether he said, Enasaba or because even that euphemism, even that nickname, if you will, is so filled with meaning, with direction, with focus for us to be able to succeed in our own Torah study. The Ben Yehoyada adds another possibility. The Ben Yishchai and Ben Yehoyada says that it's customary in Jewish communities to be concerned with ayin hara, with what we call the evil eye. We don't like to flaunt things. You know, there's a Kliyakar who talks about the first giving of the luchos. He says it was, it was too much fanfare. It didn't, didn't last. He says, says this to our sages. Nothing more beautiful than subtle, understated. You don't have to be garish and in your face. You know, understated elegant, quiet. Attracting attention is never a good thing. I had an uncle who was extremely brilliant. Tragically, he passed away before his 50th birthday in a terrible car accident. His name was Rabbi Label Kaplan. Exceptional, amazing person. Brilliant, brilliant genius, a shliach of the Rebbe who built, literally, entire neighborhoods in the holy city of Tzfat. At the same time, was able to find the ability and somehow fit Torah study into his schedule, authored books of Torah, had a tremendous, tremendous grasp and profundity of Torah knowledge. Very unusual. Really like, almost like a once-in-a-generation kind of chassid. So, my Zayda, Allah Shalom, very much wanted that the Rebbe should be Masabi Kedushan from my Uncle Abel, that the Rebbe himself should officiate. The Rebbe officiated the weddings of Chassidim, of the students of the yeshiva and the girls of the seminary during the 50s. And the Rebbe had made conditions, conditions that the Kala take upon herself to wear a shetel, to cover her hair, and that the couple commit themselves to going on shlichut. And everybody wanted to have the Rebbe be Masabi Kedushan, so people said, oh yeah, yeah, for sure, we're going to do this. But unfortunately, not everybody followed through. And they found excuses. And the Rebbe said, in that case, he was going to stop that practice. The last Kiddushan that the Rebbe officiated was, I believe it was in 1960, or in the early 60s. And that was for uh, my brother's father-in-law, mother-in-law, Rabbi Shmuel, and Hindalu. And that too was an ex- extraordinary exception. And there's actually a tape, that's what we have, a tape of the Rebbe saying the Rachas. At any rate, my uncle Abel gets married in 1971, in January of 71, and the Rebbe hasn't officiated in uh, over a decade. So my Zayda was very proud of his son Label, and he said to the Rebbe, he wanted the Rebbe to be Masabi Kedushan. And the Rebbe said to him, Vos daftidos. What do you need it for? Vos, vos, what do you need that people should speak? I mean, people should speak. What do you need it for? In other words, a kind of thing to be different than others could cause the notion of ayin hara. So we don't like to call attention to ourselves. 
And that doesn't sound very 21st century. <laughs> Everybody's looking for fame and likes. And, hey, look at me. But actually, traditionally, Jewish people like to kind of go beneath the radar, not call attention to oneself. It's not necessarily a good thing. There's even a Mishnah that says that it shortens one's life. And there's a Gemara that talks about a sage who was urged to go to a position of greatness, a Gemara the end of Sechus Brachas, and he, he refused, and his companion accepted the position, and he had a shorter life. And he had a shorter life. And Avi Yosef said, that's why I lived longer. So at any rate, there is oftentimes a euphemistic using of what we're going to call understated terminology. I once had a rather shocking experience. Years ago, a grandmother introduced me to her granddaughter. And uh, well, very attractive young lady. I was already married with children. And she said to me, Do you have a shidduch? I said, Look at my granddaughter. She is a zoi mias. Now, mias in Yiddish is repulsive. And I looked at the lady for a second. I don't know what she's talking about. I don't think she's repulsive. Certainly not repulsive. She says, Azoimis. And I said, ah, okay, okay, okay. This is the tradition. You don't want to cast Ayin Hara. You're trying to draw attention to your granddaughter. You want me to help you to find an appropriate match for her. But you don't want to say, look, she's gorgeous. You say, she's attractive. But you use an understated, or what we call, euphemistic kind of language, which is by emphasizing the polar opposite. So the Ben Yehuda says that Rav Nachman is a great teacher of Pompadisa and this elder who does not have a position and seems to have kind of cornered him as such. And, and this is an important teaching. It's important for us to trace prophecy. It's important for us to know where Rachav comes from and these prophets and these corners. It's important for us to know it. It, it kind of, this fills in a critical part of our understanding of the evolution or development of spiritual greatness. And stature. So, therefore, the Ben Yehuda says he pointedly called him a blackened or ugly vessel, a worn vessel, but he really was speaking euphemistically. What he was really indicating was exquisite vessel, a vessel that had been developed, and a vessel that had been, been so beautifully so be- uh, transformed and, and elevated, but he didn't want to use an expression which would cause undue attention as to us to avoid Ayan Hara. He said, Ah, you blackened pot. But really what he meant is, you exquisite piece of furniture. So much for the Sichas Chulen, for the casual talk of Rav Nachman. The bottom line is that we have now established that Rochov and her prophecies trace back to Yehoshua and Rochov. Pardon me, Chulda. Chulda and her prophecies, as well as a slew of other great prophets and priests. The Gemara comes along and says, Really? Yehoshua had children? Mm, something doesn't sound right. Let's take a look at Rashi. We missed a Rashi over here. It is between the two of us that the truth will emerge. Both are true. So the Gemara now goes on and asks a question. The Gemara says, Yeshua had children? Mm, we don't think so. 
It doesn't seem that Yeshua merited progeny. Vahaksiv, the verse clearly states, and this is in the book of Chronicles, where we chronicle the various lineages of the prominent families of the Jewish people. It says, Nun Benoi, we're going through the tribe of Ephraim, his son Nun, Yehoshua Beno. And then it says Yehoshua. In other words, that the lineage or the line of Ephraim ended with Yehoshua, that line, that bloodline. There was no continuity to the bloodline of Ephraim after Yehoshua, for through others, but not through Yehoshua, not through Nun. Nun ends with Yehoshua. So we see he doesn't have any children. Rashi says, Nun b'no Yehoshua b'no eschevet Ephraim mityaches hakosov ad Yehoshua. The Torah traces the lineage of Ephraim back to, all the way down to Yehoshua. After Yehoshua, we do not hear of great leadership or prominence attributed to Ephraim. So the Gemara says, Bone lehavelei banton havelei. He didn't merit male progeny. And we know that when it comes to the tribe, we follow the father. When it comes to one's Jewish identity, we follow the mother. So, a male child will necessarily be Jewish because of his mother, and he'll be the tribe of his father. But the daughters of Yehoshua would marry men outside of the tribe of Yehoshua, or did marry men outside the tribe of Yehoshua, as we see they married Kohanim, and as such, or from the family of David Melech, and as such, there was no remnant to the lineage of Yehoshua, per se, meaning his lineage of Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim. He had progeny, he had children, he had generations, but the genealogy was not attributed to Ephraim, the tribe of Yehoshua. Now, the Gemara's words here, and we're going to turn the page now, but before we do so, I want to take a moment to talk about the fact that it seems Yehoshua doesn't have children. It's, I mean, he has progeny, clearly, from very great people. These eight prophets and Kohanim come from Yehoshua. So the Sifzachim asks, if you have the lineage of a Rebbe of the Jewish people, why do you mention Rachav then? What, what, what value is the lineage of Rachav? Let's say she wasn't a Zona as in the harlot prostitute way. She was just an innkeeper. Okay, but she really came from nowhere. From nowhere. In fact, the Tosfos asks, how did Yehoshua marry her all together? She was from the seven nations, seven Canaanite nations, and you're not allowed to marry the seven Canaanite nations. So the Tosfos says, we must say, she wasn't really from the seven nations. She was from another, her genealogy was from another nation, but she lived amongst them. And then the Tosfos has another sophisticated method of argument that the prohibition of marrying the seven Canaanite nations is only after entering the land of Israel. At any rate, she was no great shakes, it seems, to speak of. Why would we have to trace the prophecy of Chulda, the great Chulda, to Rachav? Why would Ibn Nachman do that? Would Ibn Nachman himself acquiesces and says, yes, yes, she is from a descendant of Yehoshua who marries Rachav. So then why speak of Rachav? Especially because genealogy, or as the specifics of your lineage, usually are from your father, not your mother. You're Jewish from your mother, your genealogy or your lineage is from your father. The Sif Sechachomim says there's a very important principle that's being established. 
Do not underestimate the power of a convert. In fact, the koichoi shall ger tzedek, the power, the spiritual accomplishment, achievement, and stature of a convert could be greater than a Rebbe himself. So much so that Chulda's prophecy could be traced, or, if you will, inclined after the lineage of Rachov, even more so than Yehoshua. Rev Nachman saw the likelihood of Chulda's success as a prophet, of Chulda's predisposition to spiritual elegance and, 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 and achievement as coming from Rachov, because she was a righteous convert. What an incredible lesson. What an amazing insight into the power of those who join the Jewish people. So if you're watching and you're a convert, you should know that the Gemara wants you and the whole world to know that your merit could be as great as the merit of Yehoshua himself, Rebbe of his day. Heavy stuff. So why didn't Yehoshua have sons? You know, according to the Torah, in order to have fulfilled the mitzvah of Peru Urvu, the mitzvah of multiplication or of increasing having children, you need to have a son and a daughter. And Yehoshua only has two daughters. Why did Hashem withhold that from him. So first of all, who are we to ask? Hashem has his ways. Some of the greatest tzaddikim of all time did not merit to have physical children and it's not for us to ask or try to understand that. Who greater than the Rebbe and the Rebetzin and today's the Rebetzin's Yilula? And how could anybody understand the ways of Hashem, the mysterious ways of Hashem? Yet, when it comes to Yehoshua, the Gemara actually does talk about this. So if the Gemara talks about it, then you can look and learn what the Gemara says. There's a Gemara in Edevin on page 63 that gives us two opinions. Rabbi Levi said this is because Yehoshua once was a little bit strident in the presence of Moshe. And we learned in our previous episode that one is not permitted to give direction, halachic direction, in the presence of the Rebbe. When Eldad and Medad said something, which was disparaging, it seemed, to Yehoshua against Moshe Rabbeinu, even though they were prophesizing, Yehoshua, in his loyalty, fierce, fierce loyalty to Moshe Rabbeinu, cried out, Adoni Moshe Kloim, my master Moshe, wipe him out, get rid of him. And there's two interpretations. Give him so much work, they'll have no time. Or literally, they deserve death for speaking against the Rebbe of the Jewish people. Now, for me and you, this would be a great mitzvah. You and I will be rewarded for our loyalty, for our devotion to our Rebbe. But tzaddikim are looked at differently. You know, like a semi-precious stone, whatever it's worth, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 200 bucks, 500 bucks, a little imperfection or lack of color makes no difference. Even ordinary diamonds, the kind of diamonds like that, you know, people like ourselves would buy for daughters-in-laws. How much? You know, it's a diamond, it's a diamond, a few thousand dollars. But the diamonds that the great, you know, that they buy in Hollywood or the people who are in the, in the millionaire and billionaire brackets, their diamonds can go for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the slightest imperfection or the slightest detail that isn't 100% right can cause value to plunge by tens of thousands of dollars. And that's the meaning of a Kaddish Baruch Medaktik, but Tzaddikim God is precise and exacting from Tzaddikim literally by a hair's breadth. So for Yeshua, that was considered to be something inappropriate, a shortcoming. And since the notion of teaching children 
is the notion of like having teaching Torah is like having a child. And since Yoshua was like a spiritual child to Moshe, but here he did not act with the fullest respect as Hashem would expect of somebody like Yoshua, he didn't merit then to have a male descendant, somebody who would be able to take his place. That's how the Ritva explains the opinion of Rabbi Levi. The Gemara there in Erevin also lists the opinion of Rav Abba Bar Papa, who says that he was punished, listen to this, because he began the siege against Jericho at night. And as such, the soldiers were on the front lines and didn't spend that night with their wives. And because of this, there were babies that could have been conceived that were either delayed or didn't get conceived. Now again, Yahushua was just doing the prudent thing and ensuring that the troops were ready to roar at dawn, that the, the siege would be laid under the cover of night. But Hashem says, for a tzaddik like that, they should have been worried about babies that could have been born. Think about that. Think about the notion that Yahushua, in fulfilling his divine mission of conquering the land of Eretz Yisrael by keeping those husbands away from their wives and possibly causing some baby not to be conceived is held accountable. Think about how many people could have more children and choose not to. Think about the notion of family planning, which the Rebbe maintained is a ridiculous notion. It's not your plans, it's Hashem's plans. You do your part and leave the rest to Hashem. Think about the notion of those who end pregnancies, scary stuff. Anyway, that's what Rabbi Bar Papa says. And Rabbi Bar Papa's words are explained by the Marsha as such, that because they, it was not only about the soldiers, Marsha says, because when the Jewish people went into battle formation, so the Mishkan was dismantled and the Aron was not in its rightful place. And when the Aron was, so to speak, exposed, it was inappropriate for people to be intimate. So it wasn't only the soldiers, but actually all couples didn't cohabit a night early. And all that cohabitation of a whole nation surely would have caused uh, some pregnancies not to ensue. You know, sometimes you have a window of pregnancy and if you don't get it at the right time, it doesn't happen. So here, Yehoshua is held culpable for that. And the Midah, Keneged Midah is that he was withheld from having male progeny. Anyway, lots to think about. But Akopanim, the Gemara comes with the conclusion that there's this idea of tracing prophecy both to Yehoshua, a Rebbe of the Jewish people, and at the same time to Rochav, a convert, telling you that in Nachman's view, it was the ancest- ancestry of a convert, a righteous convert, that led to prophecy even more so than the lineage of Yehoshua ben And with this, we turn the page on to Daf Tezvav, page 15 of the Gemara Meseches Miguel. The Gemara says, one second, one second. We learned in the Brisa that these eight prophets are uh, directly descended from Rachav. As we talk about great length, so the Gemara now wishes to clarify. The Gemara says, Bishleme inhu. If you talk about the prophets mentioned, all right, fine, I know who these prophets are. Ella Evyasayu Minolon. Who is Evyasayu? Where did he come from? Meaning, the fathers. You can talk about the children, but we never said the fathers are prophets. Now remember, the list of prophets that we went, to, went through are the Shemayin and Avim are. 
And we're speaking about the children and their fathers. The children we know. We didn't know about Avisai about the fathers. So how do we know that Chilkiah, who is the father of Yirmiyahu, Shalom, who is the father of Hanomel. So Hanomel was descended from a prophet and a prophetess. Neria, who is the father of Baruch, Machsia, who is the father of Sharia. How do we know that they're in the as well? The Rashi explains, Bishlema Yirmiyahu. The Hanomel, the Chsivit says, Vayovei Eli Hanomel ben David, Kidvar Hashem. He came to him, Hanomel, part ben Doidi, sorry, the, the son of my, the, my cousin, in other words, came Kidvar Hashem. In other words, how did Hanomel know to come to hear me, oh? Hashem told him, Oh, Hashem doesn't speak to me. He doesn't speak to you. He spoke to Hanomel. Two plus two equals four. So Hanomel was a prophet. Baruch Vesharyu Metzinu Shahoyu Talmidi Yirmiyahu. Baruch and Sharyu are the disciples how do we know this? So because it says, from my mouth come these words, meaning from the mouth of come these words, and I am the one who writes them. We know that he must be a disciple delivering his message. And I am writing it ink on parchment. Sharia betaych sefer Yirmiyo. Sharia we see mentioned in the book of Yirmiyo. It's Adav and Hashem sefer Yirmiyo es Sharia ben Machsia. So we see that clearly he must be a prophet as well. Why? Doesn't say a prophecy. Says Rashi umetzinu betamidin neviim shahayu neviim. We find that the disciples of a prophet were like the prophet himself. The disciples were in the image of the Rebbe. The spirit of Eliyahu goes to Elisha. Yoshua is the Talmud, the student, the disciple of Mesha. So the real disciple is the one who essentially absorbs the full intensity of his teacher. That's what he used to say. The Friedrich Rebbe had one chassid. The Rebbe. And it is said that the Rebbe had one chassid. The Debitson. Anyway, so this is the idea of the disciple, since he was a disciple of Yirmiyo, he certainly must have been one of the prophets as well. All prophesied in the second year of the reign of Darius II, who, as we mentioned in previous episodes, is the son of Ahasuerus, and yes, he was technically Jewish. But that's not the point. So the Gemara says, I'll tell you how we know the prophets. Kidu Ula. Because this follows the teaching of Ula. And Ula gives us a principle of biblical analysis. He says, Ula says, Whenever we speak of a prophet, and we mention the prophet and his father, then we know that he is a prophet who begat a prophet. Shmoi v'loi shem aviv. What if we just mention the name of the prophet, but his father's name is not mentioned? He is a prophet. But his father wasn't a prophet. If you mention his name and the name of the city he comes from, you ever hear the expression, the son of a city? The name of the city is explicit. He comes from that city. I mean, he was born in that city. What happens if Shmoy, you get the name of a prophet, not the name of a city? 
And you know he's from Yerushalayim. And what's up with Yerushalayim? Yerushalayim, as the Marsha says, that is the Mokim Hashchina. That's the place where prophecy or divine presence is manifest. All right, so now we've talked about the notion of prophet, the son of prophet, and we say that it must be that he was known to be a a prophet as well. Why? What's, what's, what forces us to say this? So the Marsha says, look, if somebody was a prophet, invariably they became famous. Prophecy was not common. And because prophecy was not common, if you were a prophet, they knew who you were. So they didn't have to identify you by your father's name. Why is it then that sometimes we do identify the father's name? Ah, unless we're actually telling you that this is prophet, son of prophet, that's for the Marshall reasons. That's the reason. If so, you'll ask me the question, why is their prophecy not recorded? Why are they not known as prophets? So we talked about this much, much earlier in our discussion of prophecy, that ultimately this is uh, kind of related to the notion that not all prophecies were meant for posterity. And there were many people who had elevated consciousness and a deep awareness of God and the future, but that was for their time alone. So they were prophets. They were very, very held in the highest esteem and they were virtuous, but they're not known as historic prophets. It's interesting to note that some maintain that this is also seen with regard to non-Jews. We see Bilam ben Ba'or, that his father would also have been a prophet. That's what the Gemara in Bava Basra, the Teisvis in the Gemara in Bava Basra says. However, the Marshal says, no, this is a Jewish rule. It could have been Bilam ben, ben Ba'or there, that Ba'or was also a seer or clairvoyant, but it, this is a rule in the Torah listing Jewish prophets, not non-Jewish prophets. At any rate, now that we've talked about tracing prophecy, and now that we've talked about lineage, so the Gemara now does something interesting. The Gemara says, here's a rule, a rule in biblical analysis. Whenever a person is listed together with their parents, and it doesn't really speak about who the parents were, but the Torah does, the Scripture does enumerate but delineate the details of one, so then, lishvach, you should know that it is a praise for both. Kigoyin, for example, Dvar Hashem ben Kushi ben Gedalia. The word of Hashem that came to Tzfanya, who is one of the minor prophets, the son of Kushi, the son of Gedalia. So this is indicative of the notion that Kushi was also a prophet, also had Dvar Hashem, and as the Masha emphasizes even Gedalia would have had Devar Hashem, divine consciousness as well, and that's why he's listed in those, in those three generations. Biyadua, it's known, Shahu Tzadik ben Tzadik, that he is not only righteous, but he has the virtue of illustrious lineage, a Tzadik birth by a Tzadik. And if the Torah talks about one of the progeny, or, pardon me, one of the generations. Lignai, in a negative fashion. Going, for example, it was on the seventh month. This is on Rosh Hashanah, one of the saddest periods in Jewish history, and I'll fill in the details for you in a minute. Bo Yishmol ben Netanya, Yishmol, the son of Netanya, ben Elishama, the son of Elishama. We went through not one, not two, but three generations here. An act of treachery and murder on Rosh Hashanah. In the killing of Gedalia ben Achikam. You know that this is wicked, the son of wicked. 
<coughs> why else mention the name? Now, let me give you a little bit of background over here. I think background is important. It's important to know that after Nebuchadnezzar chooses to cruelly and sadistically wipe out hundreds of thousands of inhabitants from Yerushalayim, according to some versions of the Talmud, millions of Jews are massacred and the Beis Amiglish is torched and the Jewish presence in Eretz Yisrael has been reduced to a pitiful remnant. Nebuchadnezzar did not want to destroy the Jewish presence in Israel altogether. And so he appointed a governor, a righteous man whose name was Gedaliah ben Achikam. And he said, you would be the governor of the remnants. You know, a vassal government, he had no real power, but uh, he didn't want to police remnants, Jewish remnants. He wasn't going to send his own soldiers in. So just stay loyal, behave, do what, I, do what I want, send in your taxes, and we'll let you allow to have like a, a shadow of your former glory. So this Yishmal ben Elishama was jealous. He was for the progeny of the royal house. And he was angry that Gedaliah ben Achikam, the righteous, Gedaliah was appointed, and he wasn't appointed. So what does he do? So the scripture, the book of Jeremiah, tells us the tragic story that it was in Rosh Hashanah. Yishmol ben Netanya ben Elishama, wicked, son of wicked, son of wicked. From the seed of the royal house of David Melech, and yes, you know that not all progeny of David Melech was righteous. And they invite Gedaliah ben Achikim to the summit, to this meal, to this, uh, if you will, repast in his honor, and there he's brutally murdered, stabbed, slashed to death by this awful individual. Now, at the time, remnants outside of Judea also had gathered around Yerushalayim. The pitiful remnants of the Jewish people, the leftover survivors, decided to try to come home, trying to make some kind of life for themselves. When Nebuchadnezzar saw what happened and that his appointment was snuffed out, was murdered, he flew into a rage and he massacred the remnants of the Jewish people and he fully extinguished what's called the embers of Jewish life in Israel. Nothing was left. Foreign people, foreign nations were brought in to occupy the land, including the Shomronin, the Samaritans, later convert to Judaism, but they're very problematic. They maintained the previous idolatrous ways. And we're going to soon hear about the trouble that they made for the Jewish people by actually stopping the building of the Beis HaMikdash, delaying the construction of the second Beis HaMikdash for a full 18 years. There you got it. That's the story of the wicked man who killed Gedaliah, this Yishmael. And because the Torah chooses to mention the name of Yishmael's father and his grandfather, we can know for this that he must have been wicked too. As the Marsha says, why else mention the name? Okay, moving right along, the Gemara now is going to look at some other prophets as we conclude this series on prophecy and move back into the Megillah. Omar of Nachman of Nachman says, Malachi, Malachi as he's called, the last of the prophets, Zemordechai, this is Mordechai. Really? Why would you call him Malachi if his name is Mordechai? So the Gemara says, Malachi is a permutation of the word Melech. Malachi. You know, I had a great uncle named Shraga, Melech. Shraga was after his father's father, Shraga Faivish. And 
And, and Melech, his name is Melech, they called it Melech, it's a you know, Lithuanian or white Russian pronunciation, his name was Melech. Where is Melech from? From his grandmother, whose name was Malka. So Melech, Malka, Malachi, it's a permutation of the term, he's Mishnah and Melech. And some of the commentaries go on to suggest that it's, uh, let's, let's take a look at Rashi, by the way, for Yishmael ben Netanya, who Sharegis Gedalia ben Achikim, Atzadiki is the one who murders Gedalia ben Achikim, the righteous. And we're going to be hearing now about the prophecies during the time of Darius. And we hear about Mordechai, uh, who is maybe Malachi, the Gemara thinks. Gemara is because he was uh, nicknamed as such because of his extraordinary political position. The power he had as being second in command to I think the man they call Xerxes historically, Achashverosh, and then to the son of Achashverosh, to Darius. It's interesting to note that some maintain that the name Malachi is not connected to Malchus, but rather because he was seen as a Malach, like an angel, in a time of distress. Mesve Baruch Benerya Visharya Ben. So the Gemara says here, I have a question for you. You're telling me that the Malachi is actually Mordechai. I got a problem with this. I got a problem with the notion that this Malachi is because he was a, it was because he was a Melech, or as the Masha suggests, that he was connected to was like a Malach, an angel of distress, and he's actually Mordechai. Mace faces the Gemara. The Gemara asks, Anav Nachman, how could you say that? Here is a brisa in which we learn that Baruch ben Neriah, v'sharoya ben Maaseya, v'daniel Mordechai Bilshon. Now Mordechai Bilshon is seem to be the Mordechai. He has a, he has a name. What's the name Bilshon? So the name Bilshon comes from the notion of lashon or shivim lashon. He was an expert at languages. Yeah, that's how Mordechai discovered the plot of Bigtan and Teresh, and ends up laying the foundations for the future re- redemption, salvation known as the miracle of Purim. So Mordechai would mix languages together and he would be able to, uh, by means of etymological analysis of different languages, was able to learn the deeper meanings of Torah. And by use of language, he had a special gift of reading into language, he was able to uncover deeper messages in Torah study. Anyway, so it's called Bilshan. Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi, Kulin, Nisnavu, Bishnas, Shtayim, Ledayavish, all of them are prophesizing in the second year of the reign of Darius II. This is the son of Ahasuerus. And this is the time they are saying, all of them, so many prophets, they all said the same thing. Come home, come home, come home. It's time to return to Zion. It's time to return to Eretz Yisrael. It's time to rebuild the base of Migdash. The Golos is now over. It's now 70 years, not from the exile, but from the actual destruction of the first, first base of Migdash. And the fact that we see Mordechai listed as one of the prophets urging the people to go home, to Eretz Yisrael, and because Malachi is listed in the same Brisa as one of the prophets, urging everybody to go home, the Gemara says clearly they could not be the same person. They're listed as two different people. As the Gemara says, you're right, checkmate. Indeed, we are wrong about this, and in fact, it could not be that Mordechai and Malachi are the same people. We read a little bit deeply into it, but in fact, it's not the case. But the Gemara seems to have this tradition that Malachi is not a real name, and that Malachi is actually a nom de gur for somebody else, another prophet, under whom some of the prophecies are attributed to a different name. The Gemara says, So who is Malachi? Who is actually Malachi? And he says, Malachi is Ezra, the scribe 
It's like Moshe, who leads us in to Eretz Yisrael for the second coming of the Jewish people. The Chachamim memory, Malachi Shmai. The Chachamim said his name is Malachi. Now, this is a dispute amongst the commentaries how we understand the words of the Chachamim. Are they arguing with the first opinion of Rabbi Shua ben Karcha, saying, no, 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 he was a man unto himself. It's not a Nam Digur. He was a man named Malachi. Others maintain that the question is simply, what was the primary name and what was the Nam Digur? Was Malachi also called Ezra or was Ezra also called Malachi? And if we take that approach, incidentally, you'll see that the Gemara then seems to develop this opinion that it's Ezra and uh, there's a majority opinion that he's his own person. How would you go against the majority opinion? But if we take this approach, actually, the notion of the majority opinion is not being discarded. The majority opinion and the Bishu Bekarcha are only arguing what the primary name was, but the identity is one and the same. Amr of Nachum, Nachum says, Mistavra. Makes sense. This is logical. Commander Omar, like the teacher that said, Malachi Zezer. How do we know this? The it's written in Malachi in the prophecies of Malachi. Bogdo Yehuda. Yehuda has been treacherous. An abominable behavior has been disgusting behavior. For they have violated the holiness of Yehuda. For they have loved and cohabited with alien woman, foreign woman, the woman of a foreign god. So intermarriage was the great scourge that they had to fight in that time. Ah, you thought it was a new problem. A problem that stretches back 25 centuries for the Jewish people coming back into Israel. Oman Afrish, Noshim Nochries, who was the one who broke up these illicit marriages? Who was the one who battled the notion of intermarriage valiantly rather than Chasvashalom embracing it as some foolishly think today? Ezra. Ezra was the one. Kidirsiv, as it says, Vayan, Shachne ben Yechiel, Mibne Elam, Vayemala Ezra. This individual comes. And he says to Ezra, Anachnu ma'alnu belikeinu. We have indeed been treacherous to our God. V'noishev noshem nochrius. We have brought into our homes foreign women. And Ezra, they said, Ezra, help us. Help us get out of this pickle. Help us get out of this problem. And so, what we see here is a common theme in the prophecies of Malachi and the vocation or deeds of Ezra, both had a major focus on undoing the scourge and damage of intermarriage. And so, because of this, we can assume it's logical, said Nachman, that they were in fact the same person. Let's take a look at Rashi, Bishnas Shtayim Odeyavish, the second year of the reign of Darius. This was, this is the Darius the last, the second, not Darius the first who was of Media, the king of Media, who destroys Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, the son of Merodach Evil. And then, after the, the um, uh, Darius comes Cyrus, the Persian. Cyrus, the Persian, gives permission for the Beis Hamikdash to be rebuilt. The Samaritans, the Shomeronim, the foreign nation that was brought in to occupy the land of Israel, was a thorn in our side. Nothing is new in the sun. And they are the ones who sent messages to Cyrus, don't do it. The Jewish people are simply building a platform for rebellion. And Cyrus heeds them. And he stops the destruction, the, the building of the base of Migdash. He is replaced by Ahashverosh, who marries Vashti, the daughter of Belshazzar, a grand, the great-granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. He establishes his power base by building a new capital. And he makes everything new. 
And during, and in the third year of his reign, is when he makes his party. In the twelfth year of his reign, is when the story of Purim unfolds. Eventually, Ahasuerus is assassinated, and his son, through Queen Esther, Darius II, reigns in Persia, and he gives permission for the Jewish people to rebuild the base. English has spoke about this in detail in one of the previous episodes. We still have the actual steely, if you will, or imprint, this, the, 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 the roll, that you can roll that on, on clay, the, giving the order for the rebuilding of the Beis Hamikdash. Funny enough, it's actually found in the United Nations today. I saw it with my own eyes and read the translation of it. At any rate, so Nizbatlo Hamalacha Zeshmein Eshishana, the work of the Beis Hamikdash had been impeded for 18 years. Ayadei Shomornim through the hands of the Shomornim. Mishishchilu Babi Mekedesh, what was started in the days of Korish of Cyrus. So Bagdi Yehuda Sefer Dekra, what's the end? What's the treachery of Judea that they cohabited with alien women, and in the in the in this way violated their bond with Hashem? The Gemara now comes to its close of analysis of extraordinary biblical woman. What you're going to read now may shock you a little bit. It is not some holy. It's not about prophecy. It's about lust and carnal desire. But whatever. The Gemara is the Gemara. Talmud Rabbanon, the Rabbanon, the rabbis learned Arba Noshim Yofiyofiyos. There were four extraordinarily beautiful women. The Marsha says Yofiyofiyos, a double redundant expression of Yofa. They were extremely, extremely beautiful, very, very beautiful, so And there was like a an inclination towards things lustful when they were brought to mind. Who are these amazingly beautiful women? Sarah. Avigail, Rachav, and Esther. Now that's in a, in a parenthesis, because Rachav comes before Avigail. So these are all women who we've spoken of in our previous episodes. There is an opinion that Esther was actually not very beautiful. And the whole thing didn't make any sense why Achashverosh fell in love with her. She was like a greenish complexion. Saying to somebody, you look green, is not necessarily a compliment. Anyway, so Mapik Esther, they take Esther out of the equation, Umayil, and they bring in Vashti. Who cares? What relevance is this, right? By the way, the Teisvis asks, why don't you talk about Chava? It says that although Sorrow was very beautiful, she was like an ape before the beauty of Chava. And the Teisvis says, because Chava was created by the hand of Hashem. And these women were born of a father and a mother. And that's what we talk about. So this is what you call organic or natural beauty, not God's made, handmade beauty. So the Gemara says, now talking about this, Tanah Rabbanon, our rabbis learned, Rachav Bishma Zinsa. Just by mentioning the name Rachav, people were stirred to lust. Yal Bikoila. The Yal, her beauty was such that people would hear her voice. Her voice alone could bring people to lust. Avigail Zechirasa. People would think of Avigail. She was so exquisite that it brought people to lust. Michal bas Shol, Michal the daughter of Shol, Biriyasa when you saw her. Now it's interesting to note that all of this is actually scripturally, scripturally related, as the Maharsha points out the following. The Maharsha says, it says, Isha Zayna Ushma Rachav, a woman, a harlot, and her name. So there's an emphasis on name. So the Znus, the lust, comes through her name. With regard to Yal, it says, Vatoimar Elov. She said to Sisra, ah, said, that's voice. So that was voice-activated lust. Ayyadeh Dibura, through her, her words and her voice. 
which brought people to lust. Avigail, she says, we learned this in a previous episode, remember your maidservant. So it was the memory that was uh, a turn on. You'll forgive me. And then, finally, Micha Bashol, it says, that she remained out of the public eye because she knew that people would ogle her as an inappropriate fashion. So she didn't want to be out there. She didn't want people to see her. She didn't appreciate that unwanted male attention. So anyway, we see that this notion that Masha says lines up with what the Pesukim say. Somebody who says the name Rachav twice, which is the notion of repeating a name twice is endearment. Nikri, he would experience an emission, a seminal emission. Amr of Nachman, really? I know, I mean, Rachav, Rachav, I said Rachav, Rachav, nothing happened like that happened to me. When is this said? Those who know her, those who recognize her, and there's the dispute of our sages, if knowing means like Adam, Yoda, Schava, like knowing means those who are intimate with her, and perhaps those two opinions follow the notion of whether Rachav was actually a harlot or not whether knowing was knowing-knowing or hmm, just knowing. At any rate, the point was that there were certain people whose imagery was like a, for lack of better terminology, what you call today, in today's uh, language, like, a, what are these icons, these sex icons? And so what, why is the Gemara telling this to us? I mean, like, uh, it sounds so strange. That's how we conclude this whole amazing series on female prophecy. What, what's going on here? So, the commentaries on the Gemara tell us that we must know the following, that inasmuch as there were many, many amazing spiritual women and prophetesses and leaders amongst the Jewish people, it doesn't mean that we have the right to gaze in a lustful fashion. And the Gemara doesn't ignore sexuality. The Gemara is very upfront about it. The Gemara does not believe in platonic friendships between men and women. The Gemara doesn't believe in being comfortable to uh, gaze at a woman other than your spouse or your children. And your, or, I mean, shouldn't gaze lustfully at anybody other than your spouse. But I'm saying the notion of looking at and enjoying the beauty of is something we have to be careful with. And, and, and the Gemara recognizes this. And the Gemara wants to impart this message to us. The fact that w- these women had these great levels of esteem were held in, in, the, in, the, in the highest honor doesn't mean that we should lower our guard insofar as things like, like lust and inappropriate. I think uh, what I'm saying is more than enough for everybody to figure it out on their own. I'll share with you an interesting observation I made years ago. There was a, um, I don't know, a woman who called herself rabbi, and I don't believe in that. And oh, so here was the story in the, in the local newspaper which I believe is not Canadian Jewish or had any news in it. That's just my personal opinion. Very, very, very subjective and biased in its reportage. Very, I found very anti-religious and very anti-observance and, of course, anti-Chabad. So they, there was this writer who talked about a new female cantor, and he was describing her voluptuous nature. I kid you not. And I used to get that newspaper and I just like stopped getting it. It made me sick. And he was literally saying how spiritual it was and he was describing her figure. So this woman rabbi, quote unquote, sends a letter to the editor. How disgusting that such and such wrote this article. You know, would, would you say the rabbi is a hunk or a sexy guy? And I remember, I remember seeing the article and being quite disgusted by it and then seeing this letter 
And I thought to myself, yeah, that's exactly the point. It's exactly the point. Men look at women in a certain way, and you, you can ignore that or make believe it isn't so, but we do so at our own peril. And the sages were brutally honest and open when it came to these kinds of subjects. And we have to be careful. Propriety is something that has to be maintained, and we have to go to extreme lengths to ensure that we're always modest and we don't become lax in this area, although in the new century it's welcomed and embraced and celebrated and somebody who doesn't engage in this kind of closeness of friendship is considered to be a, a weirdo, um, the Gemara knows better. And our society is filled with stories, sordid stories, of things like this getting out of hand. And so we maintain our respect, our dignity, our propriety. We shouldn't be endearingly calling a woman who's not our wife. We're using affectionate terminology. We shouldn't be staring at or looking at the beauty of an, another, somebody else's wife, and so on and so forth. And by doing so, we can ensure that a woman has her rightful position as being a prophetess and bringing us the word of Hashem, but at the same time, not violating basic tenets of modesty and decency, which enable us to be an Am Kaddish, a holy nation to Hashem. I'll finish by mentioning that in the final journey of the Jewish people, the end of the 42nd journey in the desert, our great challenge was immodesty. The woman who, of Midian who seduced Jewish men, which almost brought us to our knees and almost stopped the trajectory of Jewish history with the exception of Pinchas. And the Rebbe once wrote in a letter that we know from the Begel Machne Ephraim that the 42 journeys going from Mitzrayim to Eretz Yisrael are paradigmatic of 42 journeys in each of our personal lifetimes and also 42 journeys in the journey of the Jewish people. And the Rebbe said that the last two challenges, the great challenges that the Jewish people had on that final journey was matters of intimacy and propriety and monogamy, you know, the notions of, of living a clean life, so to speak, and the notion of koshering the food because from the battle with Midian they have to kosher, pardon me, the vessels of the kitchen. And the Rebbe maintained that this was the reason that amongst the ten mitzvahim, amongst the ten mitzvah campaigns which he introduced to galvanize Am Yisrael around Torah observance so that we could merit the coming of Mashiach, there is the mitzvah of Taras HaMashpacha, building mikvaot and teaching people to live with a sense of purity and the notion of kosher in kitchens. And many of the other mitzvahim, the other mitzvah canes are fairly easy. It's fairly easy to put a coin in a pushka. It's fairly easy to put on a pair of film, to affix a mezuzah, to even take some time to study Torah daily. Taras HaMashpacha, to change your intimate lifestyle, that's a big deal. It's not easy at all. And building mikvah is very expensive. Tell somebody to kosher their kitchen, huge deal. And yet, that maintains these are the challenges of our time. So may we overcome our final challenges and may we merit to see prophecy fully restored to the Jewish people with the coming of Mashiach, Bimheira, will be Amenu, Amen. Thanks so much for joining.